Listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the fear of God. We have officially hit double digits. This is episode 10. The Fear of God is a podcast where two college friends, which sounds like we're in college currently, that is not in fact the case. We were in college together about 15 years ago, discuss the intersection of two seemingly disparate subjects, but that being the Christian faith and the horror genre. I am one of your co-hosts, Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is Reed Lackey, but today He's too busy wearing a creepy mask and terrorizing neighborhood babysitters uh, to join us. Perhaps he will. I'm just kidding. Reed, are you there? Na, 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 Whoa. Yep. Wow, there he is. That's actually Twilight Zone. That's oh, I was going to say, that Halloween. doesn't sound quite right. I should but, be embarrassed. You know, you should, yeah, you should, no. should we reboot? Should we go back? Start over? Uh, let's not start over, but I'll, I'll, I'll give the, the, the requisite little... Uh, I wasn't going to let us start over anyway. But um, yeah, so, but see, you, but, you guys know the theme by now. Come on, you know what Halloween sounds like. Um, but yes, Reed is in fact not terrorizing neighborhood babysitters. Um, that would be troubling and not today and worth no, no, not today. Um, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. But um, in the spirit of that, yes, today we are finishing our month-long dive into the career of one Mr. John Carpenter. In the spirit of that, Reed, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween and happy Halloween, listeners! Yeah, We're glad you're here. This is uh, this is like your favorite holiday ever. It is actually, yeah. Um, Christmas is my favorite season, but Halloween is my favorite holiday. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and divert us real quick. So I don't know about you, although you you had this as a favorite long before this, perhaps. But Halloween has like zoomed up the holiday list for me since having kids. Oh yes, there is just something like you know, Christmas has a bit of a tangle to it in the sense that. On the one hand, you know, we give all these gifts to kids and you try to tamp down a little bit and be like, but it's still about Jesus. But here, here's a ton of presents. So you're like sending this sort of mixed (laughs) message. Um, There's something real pure about the holiday of Halloween that I've grown to just adore in the last few years having kids that can engage it. And it's it's like, you know what, there's there's this sense of hospitality when you're trick or treating, you know, you can you can sort of not feel bad, go kids, get candy. Yes, I'm not going to hit you with this sort of, you know, double speak of get the candy, but remember it's really about Jesus. You know, so I don't know. I've really <laughs> I've really grown to love, love, love the holiday of Halloween. And that's not just me saying that because I'm a co-host on this show about the horror genre. It is in fact quite true. But yes, we are discussing today the movie Halloween. Let me uh, let yeah, me do, let me in. continue our diversion real quick because I think it's it merits some conversation. Please, today. I'm sorry to not give you that choice. No, no, no. Uh, I will say that like um, I didn't even plan. Neither of us planned to talk about this, but it probably merits a moment's discussion because m- mostly in Christian circles, 
Halloween is considered an unacceptable holiday by, by a, a wide variety of people. And one of the things that I want to piggyback on something that you've said that I, uh, of course, my son's four years old. Your daughters are a little older. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I noticed specifically, and before I say this, I'm not uh, like a, you know, down with social media, down with Facebook, all of this other sort of stuff. But I noted the last couple of years that we've taken my son trick-or-treating that when we're walking out there, there is a wide variety of people, probably easily, you know, a couple hundred, maybe more people wandering around. We're all dressed up. We're commenting on each other's costumes. We're, share, you know, like people are giving out candy. People are stopping to chat real quick. How have you been? It is such a community yeah. vibe yeah. and community feel. And yeah, I mean, some people are dressed up like creepy, scary things. And, you know, I'm even sensitive to the fact my son's four. There was a couple of houses he didn't want to walk up next to and sure. a couple places sure. where I, where, you know, I, where he did want to go, but he wanted me to carry him. And, you know, like that, that's, that's fine. I understand the sensitivity there. But as a general holiday, that's one of the things I have really taken to, as you said, since having my son, it's, it's, it's really a special thing to get out there and to be part of that community and go trick or treating with family or go trick or treating with friends. And, uh, it's just, it's just a real hospitable holiday. And at the same time, we kind of get to engage in this sort of fantasy element. If you're one of those Christians who really has strong feelings against Halloween, uh, you know, I would encourage you not to dismiss the holiday outright. You know, dress them up like a superhero, dress them up like a princess, dress them up like something else that's something more akin to like the fantasy atmosphere. But it is such an enjoyable community experience for myself beyond just sort of the fear factor uh, that I think is uh, is just so much fun. And I look forward to it. Every single year, I just get so excited, um, and I completely echo that. Yeah, I mean, neither of us really anticipated going this route, though it's a pleasant uh, path to follow. I mean, like, I was caught off guard with how surprised I was, or with how, or, or you know, I, I grew surprised at how enamored I became these last few years, and by the time this releases, my kids will be eight and six, um, which is crazy. But, you know, there is just something about the joyful abandonment with which they sprint across a yard, you know, <laughs> to get candy. And I'm not going to be like, nope, you got too much. No, yeah, we'll, we'll moderate how much they're eating. But, you know, like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on every level. It's, a, it's a, an incredibly fun experience that has, like I said, really, really zoomed to the top of the list for me in terms of things I look forward to in the year. I agree. So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, tying a bow there, Reed, you have been our meister, that's like a super. Ner- that's a super nerd cut right there for the Game of Thrones fans. But uh, Meister Lackey, who has been walking us through the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the the successes and failures, the tears and the the joys of John Carpenter's career, bring us home, brother. I mean, you know, there's. Uh, I'm worried there's nowhere to go but down based on <laughs> based on last week's assessment. Oh my gosh! But you yeah. know, bring it, just just bring us home, Reed. Bring us home. Well, uh, actually, take us into the mouth of madness. Oh, Prince of Darkness! Oh, yeah, that's a that's a scary place to scary place to be. Um, well, and honestly, you know this this what we're going to be talking about in terms of sort of biography for Carpenter is actually a little little bit of a down note because following vampires, uh, the 2000s saw one early film for him. I think it was in 2001. Uh, it was a film called Ghosts of Mars that I have a couple of things I want to say about, but. Beyond that, we're kind of getting into his semi-retirement, and largely he was suffering a little bit of burnout. Uh, even while making Ghost of Mars, he had had 
such mixed experiences with working with filmmakers and, uh, or like, uh, you know, the film community studios and, uh, critics responses and even audiences responses. Um, so he had had, you know, he, he said this, you know, state is a kind of statement that just makes me really sad. He said filmmaking had stopped being fun for him. And Ghosts of Mars makes me even more sad because it was actually supposed to be the third uh, Snake Plissken movie. Uh, I don't think I've said his name yet, but Snake Plissken is the character that Kurt Russell plays from Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Ghosts of Mars was supposed to be uh, the third and possibly final Snake Plissken story, but because Escape from L.A. was such a, a critical and financial bomb, it never happened. And, uh, it sort of dissolved and people weren't going to finance another Snake Plissken movie. So, um, so instead, oh, I'm going to try not to sound, uh, derisive here. Instead of Kurt Russell, who I think is an amazing actor, uh, in the lead of Ghosts of Mars is one Ice Cube, which is a, uh, dramatic departure in, uh, tone and to some degree talent. And not taking anything away from Ice Cube. Is it? But. Well, let me guess. I, I've not seen Ghosts of Mars, but, um, I'm going to take a stab at the plot. He is looking for, He's on Mars, and he's looking for the dead body of Matt Damon. Cause, oh. Because he, he didn't get back. Nope. 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 That's not quite correct. It's close, but it's not uh, quite correct. Let me try again. Ice Cube is on Mars, and he finds these little people, and they jump in, little green alien people, and they jump in these spaceships and come, and Jack Nicholson's the president. Oh, that's Ghost of Mars Attacks. No, no. Yeah, nope, it's not quite correct. Actually, what happens is that uh, Ice Cube is is on Mars, and uh, he starts uh, the uh, surprisingly popular Def Jam records, and uh, and that's you know uh, it's uh, straight out, and, straight and out we're going to call it straight out of Mars, <laughs> but but it doesn't it doesn't quite play out that way. Oh, that's great. That needs that needs to get made, Reed. That needs to get made. You're in Southern California. I'm not. Somebody's listening to this. Who's like, wait a minute. That's that's uh, there's an idea here. There's an idea. Quick to the typewriter. <laughs> so, because um, everybody still writes the scripts on typewriters, yes, yes. but um, but uh, I mean, here's the thing about Ghost of Mars <laughs> is that that it is uh, if you're looking, I'm I'm actually not being facetious here. If you're looking for a kind of brainless B movie action horror film, it's not bad. If you're looking specifically for that thing, like it's a pretty good B movie, it's just a pretty bad anything else. It, it, it's just, it's just really, I mean, it's got weak acting, of course. Um, it's got a mediocre script that Carpenter actually did write, but it's, it's still kind of a mediocre script. On a script. typewriter. On a typewriter. And, uh, fr- you know, like the plot itself, like it's framed with a lot of flashbacks. So it kind of undercuts any sort of suspense or tension that it would have by, you know, by telling its entire story. In flashback and following Ghosts of Mars, which of course was critically panned and didn't do well at the box office, uh, Carpenter kind of goes silent uh, for several years. It, basically, what we what happened following Ghosts of Mars is then we have a series of remakes of some of his films, like we had Assault on Precinct Thirteen, which we've briefly referenced. We also had uh, the unwatchable remake of The Fog, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, and uh, then they also sort of infamously had a remake to the film that we're going to be talking about today, Rob Zombie, who uh, has become something of a very specific visionary voice in the horror genre, um, decided to take it upon himself to remake Halloween. And uh, it was met with some mixed reviews. I, I did not care for it, although I do think Rob Zombie is a talented director. 
Uh, I think he has some definite skill as a director, but I didn't care for the remake of Halloween. And it's not just because I'm so beholden to the original. I think it just, it just trying to do a couple of things that I didn't respond to very well. They were, they were stylish, but not, you know, just didn't quite cut it for me. And then the last thing I'll mention in terms of the remakes, uh, is actually, uh, we referenced it last week. Uh, there was also The Thing, which is not a remake. It is a prequel to the 1982 original, um, starring, uh, our beloved Mary Elizabeth Winstead from 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, I actually think it's pretty good. A lot of people didn't really care for it. They said it's just more of the same. I've heard, I've heard good things. I've not, I've not seen it, but I have heard good things. Yeah. I, I like it. I personally think it's, it's fun and it's good. And that if you're very fond of the original, you know, don't expect it to reach those same heights, but I think it's worth your time. And being a prequel, there's some fun winks and nods, uh, along the way that I won't spoil for you. But, uh, Carpenter was pretty, pretty burnt out after Ghosts of Mars. And so we had those, uh, all of those, those glut of remakes. But then he reemerges because Showtime, thanks to director Mick Garris, uh, Showtime began to, to collect a group of horror masters, uh, and, and they collected a series of, they're, they're technically TV episodes, but at, at an hour apiece, they're essentially shorter films called Masters of Horror. Um, which is a little bit of a mixed bag, in my opinion, of, of ranging in, in quality. But Carpenter submitted two films uh, that were in this Masters of Horror series, one of which is possibly the best of the series and is definitely the highest rated of the series among you know fans and audiences. And the two submissions he made was one called Cigarette Burns and another one called Pro-Life. Cigarette burns. Actually, let me start with pro life because pro life is. Uh, I mean, we are is, we are a sort of Christian themed podcast, so that's an appropriate place to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, check out this premise. Uh-oh. So, um, a violent anti-abortion activist tries to uh, invade and assault members of an abortion clinic after his daughter uh, runs to them for help. Uh, what he does not realize is that she is asking them to help abort her demon lobster baby. Oh, you um, kind of had me till about there, actually. I was <laughs> like, that sounds kind of intriguing. Well, never mind. Yeah, and, and here's the funny thing about it is that it's supposed to be kind of this this odd, fantastical commentary, but uh, the problem is it's just too on the nose to have anything really substantive to say, and it's definitely, even given that premise, sort of lacks nuance. Just don't, don't, <laughs> don't do it with demon lobsters, and you won't have a demon lobster baby. That's the point of the movie, right? There you go. But I will say that the, the creature effects in in the, in the episode are not bad, but, um, but otherwise it's entirely missable. <laughs> well, I would hope not. It's a demon lobster. You got to have something to it back is, that up. It's so bad. Um, but, uh, but cigarette burns is interesting because, uh, cigarette burns is this interesting sort of metaphorical observation of the power of film and the power of filmmakers. The premise of cigarette burns is that there's this film, uh, which has been made and somehow the filmmaker actually got a hold of a divine being of an angel and filmed their, violent assault on film and supposedly this film has an incredible effect on anybody who watches it a very horrific effect on anybody who watches it so while the plot itself is kind of middling it is a a very interesting sort of examination of filmmakers who want to try to push the edges and when they possibly go too far and some of what we've already talked about and don't need to retread about just the power of film and the power of public opinion um, so I'm sure that there was a, a lot of personal touches in Cigarette Burns. And if there's any of the Masters of Horror series that I think is, is probably worth seeking out, it would be Cigarette Burns for a variety of reasons. But he wouldn't direct another feature film until 2010. 
thanks to Masters of Horror, he said he kind of recaptured the spark of the fun of making a movie again. And he made a film in 2010 called The Ward, uh, which as of this recording is available to stream on Netflix. Which, by the way, we haven't mentioned this yet, but um, as of this recording, which I don't know if it'll still be the case in October when this airs, but um, Escape from L.A. and Big Trouble in Little China and The Ward are all streaming on Netflix. And you could probably find... Um, you could do some searches for his work and see, you know, where some of these films are available by the time this episode drops. But The Ward, when I finally saw it, I came into it knowing that critics hated it and audiences were kind of in agreement. Um, so like a, a, just a lot of negativity towards this film, The Ward. And so I went into it going, literally starting the movie going, okay, I'm watching this out of loyalty because it's John Carpenter. He's made a new film. I, I want to see what it is. Um, and I was actually really surprised. I don't think that it deserves the anger. What's the, what's the plot? The premise is that there is this, uh, series, there's this sequence of mental patients who are being systematically stalked and killed by some sort of paranormal supernatural entity. That is as much as I want to say about the plot because there is one reason why I think audiences have a legitimate beef with this movie. The film's ending and the film's conceit uh, directly mirrors... I can't even say the name of the other film because it would give away too much of the plot. Uh, another film that had come out in 2003. And like I said, gotcha. if I even named that other film you would know the conceit of the ward. So so I, I think that when audiences saw that, they were kind of like, oh, this is just like that movie, so gotcha. this is garbage. And uh, But, you know, that aside, I think the ward is actually a really effective little suspense thriller. It's got some of the elements that, that I've come to praise about Carpenter's work. It's, it's good suspense. It's good effects. Um, it's this microcosmic kind of story. And, and I actually really liked The Ward. I don't think it's, I don't think it's fantastic, but I think possibly because of expectations being so low, I walked away going, no, I actually really liked that movie. But I do understand if people are like, well, it's just like this other film. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's, it's just like this other film. So, you know, worth seeking out if you're, if, if you're curious about that, but be warned that you may find it a bit familiar. I'll just say that. But the last thing that I want to talk about in this sort of biography portion of our profile is it's been interesting to me in the last five to ten years to see so many new items being made, new products, new films, new TV shows that pay direct homage to the work of John Carpenter. I recently saw, and maybe there's an episode to be had in this, I recently saw uh, the Netflix original series Stranger Things. Um, I think it's wonderful. I think it's absolutely fantastic, and most audiences uh, that I know of agree um, it's getting highly praised by critics and audiences. And there is so much of not only John Carpenter's influence, but also Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. But uh, there's lots of influences to this thing. But it, they've got a lot of affection for John Carpenter, specifically The Thing. Uh, uh, and that film, you know, has some influence on where Stranger Things goes. Also, It Follows um, was Great. sort of beholden. Yeah, that's a wonderful movie and it was very beholden to some of Halloween which we can talk about uh, in a little bit but also I recently saw like as of just this week saw a beautiful lovely little non-horror film called Midnight Special that was Jeff uh, by Jeff Nichols yep. yeah Jeff Nichols on admission uh, his attempt to make a kind of a starman type story which is also John Carpenter so what's interesting to me is how despite the ups and downs in his film career He's really kind of coming to this place where he's getting a lot of affection and he's getting a lot of fandom just earlier today. And, and listen, Wes Craven was a very special filmmaker to me. 
Uh, maybe someday we'll do another profile on him. That'll be, you know, far in the future or whatever. But, uh, you know, he passed away just recently. And, uh, well, not just recently, but, but, you know, within the last couple of years, he passed away. And I just, lo- I just looked online, uh, at a couple of fan polls, which, you know, this might be a little insensitive given that Wes Craven has passed, but who do you prefer, John Carpenter or Wes Craven? And by a wide margin, people were more affectionate towards Carpenter. And all of that simply to say that, I think for a long time, if you were to invite a bunch of horror icons to a dinner, you know, you'd have your George Romero's, you'd have your, you know, Wes Craven's, you'd have, you know, these, uh, you know, these icons of the horror genre. And John Carpenter would probably be the guy that everybody turned around and looked and like, oh yeah, who invited him? We didn't, you know, like, oh, we didn't realize this. But what I love is that recently he's really starting to get some of the respect and admiration that I think he deserves, probably because the people who grew up loving his films are now making movies right. and now making TV shows. So, uh, so he's getting a lot of love and affection and he's, you know, becoming very influential in a number of ways. Quentin Tarantino is somebody else who cites Carpenter and his work, uh, even though they're dramatically different in style and tone. He cites the thing as a direct influence behind, uh, the hateful eight, you know, which is a very different kind of movie. Um, and one that I didn't really care for, but, but I just, all of that just to say Carpenter's influence is extending dramatically in the last five to 10 years. And as I've said, he's, he's a filmmaker I love. He's one of my top five favorite directors ever. And he's somebody who's always going to hold a really special place in my heart. I don't know if I've mentioned it in this profile, but, uh, but I did have the, the privilege to briefly meet him uh, one day while I, while I was working at a record store and he signed a copy of the soundtrack to Halloween for me, which I then uh, graciously gave to my nephew. But wow, it, uh, I know I'm a, I'm a good uncle. I'm a really good uncle. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's just a filmmaker that I love and respect and I really cherish his work. And uh, I'm happy to have had this opportunity to, to kind of talk about that and talk about why I love him so much. Yeah. Well, here we are. I want to jump in before we get into our movie talk. You know, we we talked somewhat at length at the top of things about the holiday of Halloween. Do you know, Reed, like we're going to pretend we're a little further along than we are. We're actually recording in early August, but I imagine you've already got some eyes on, you know, does your do you dress up as a family? Um, does just your son dress up? Um, do you and your wife dress up? What, what do y'all tend to do? Well, uh, I don't think that we've ever dressed up as a family. There's been the occasion, like there was one time where he went as Superman and I went as Batman. Nice. Um, so we've, we've you, done some you, team up there. You beat the crap out of him and held a kitchen sink over his head. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, they filmed it. They filmed it. But then, then he whispered Martha to me and I was over it, you know. So, um, so basically, there you go. Yeah. So, um, but basically, like, we don't, we don't really dress up like as a collective unit. It's, it's mostly about him getting the opportunity sure. to dress up. But it is, uh, when you're, when you're watching my family wander around the neighborhood, uh, trick or treating, it is, uh, very difficult to tell who is more excited about. <laughs> About being trick or treating, sure. uh, me or my son. I mean, yeah, he's usually the only one who dresses up, but it is a, it is a very exuberant experience for me and, uh, is something that I, that I treasure. And if there is opportunity, like with the Batman Superman thing for a, for a team dress up, then we definitely take advantage of it. Uh, we, this will have happened by the time this releases, but, um, I can happily talk about it on, on social media once it happens, but, we're actually planning this year to mine and the two girls 
birthdays all fall within a couple months. And so we're talking about doing a, uh, an Orlando trip for Disney World. And nice. um, they have, I don't know if they have this out in your neck of the woods, but they have what's called the not Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party. Do they have that? Oh, yes, yes, yeah, they do. They I don't know if they call it that, but they have a similar thing. Um, but we are going to try to hit that up, and it just looks like a heck of a lot of fun. Um, we were just talking the other day, my wife and I, about like, and she's, you know, the fact that she brought this up meant something special. Usually I'm the one who's like, hey, what should we dress up as? And then we never dress up as anything. But hmm. she was saying, you know, should we go as the Incredibles? Should we do like an Inside Out theme? So I'm kind of excited to see if we end up doing something. But regardless, whether we end up dressing up or not, I mean, the kids are going to just friggin' lose their mind at the, you know, Halloween party in the Magic Kingdom. So oh, we're really, yes. really looking forward to that. That's so, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we start the conversation about what our kids are going to dress as uh, several months ahead of, t- ahead of time simply to stave off last minute changes. We, we sort of institute, you know, a several week rule. You know, once we're like three weeks out from Halloween, you cannot change your opinion. What you're going to be. Right, right. Can't change anymore what yeah. you're, uh, you're going to do. Um, That's probably wise because we are, we're not quite last minuteers, especially my wife likes to, likes to plan and likes to be prepared. And we're thinking like, like you said, we think, you know, probably a couple of months ahead of time of like, oh man. And we, and he's old enough now that we let him have, uh, well, we've always let him have a vote and a voice. I think the only one that we selected for him, uh, was the year that he was, uh, that he was not even a year old yet. That, that's the only time that we picked it for him. He always likes to pick what he's going to be for Halloween and. <laughs> It's just adorable. Like, That's awesome. I, just, I, I just, I just love. You know, he dressed up as Robin one year. He dressed up as, uh, as I said, Superman one year. He was Tigger, and I, it was just, oh gosh, it was just so adorable. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. I'm excited because our oldest has been, honestly, since about last Halloween. Hopefully, this will carry through, and we'll actually be able to make this happen for her. Um, wants to dress as Coraline actually for oh wow um, that's great we're gonna try to make that happen uh that probably would not be for the disney trip but um you know for halloween proper that's that's really great i love that movie too that's a a really really nice movie it's so good they and it trips me out they really dig it it's it's pretty it's got some scary elements to it but they really dig it yeah and in the spirit of that and you know sort of turning the page here let's 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 go for it man Let's, let's talk you know break out break out the um candy corn you know, mm-hmm. get the uh, jack-o'-lanterns going, and let's jump into old Halloween. Let's talk about Halloween. Well, here's one thing that that I'm I'm very happy to uh, to report this bit of nonsensical trivia. Is so, that that when you is that is it is the nonsensical trivia that when you make popcorn at home, you strip down to your under things as well? Wow, um, <laughs> not sure I wanted that public, but you know, since, since it's out there, for what it's worth, um, if you've not watched the movie, that is a direct reference to the movie. Spoiler alert: that <laughs> in the movie, Reed drops trowel while making popcorn. No, not really. Whoa, there does. it is. The character does. Oh wow, um, that it, yeah, that is true. A character does that. So, but basically, uh, so w- this episode will—I don't know when our listeners are going to be listening to this. But um, this episode is going to be published and, and drop, if you want to use that language, on uh, October 25th of this year. And uh, it will be exactly the uh, 38th anniversary, 
because Halloween was released on October 25th, 1978. Um, so we are actually, you know, if you listen to this the day it, it, uh, is published, then you're, you're hearing it on the anniversary of the release date of Halloween. And, uh, I'm, I'm very happy. I would say that. what a happy accident, but something tells me there was nothing accidental about that. There was no way that was accidental. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> that was not accidental at all. Like the entire structure of our show for the next five years is going to be based upon the fact that we got to air on the, on the anniversary of Halloween. Um, but uh, as I said a couple of times already, Halloween is my, you know, is is a top 10 movie for me. It currently resides at number 10, but it's it's always been uh, a very, very special movie to me and a favorite film in uh, the horror genre. Now, you had seen this before. This is the only Carpenter film you'd seen of these four yes. uh, before going into this, right? Yeah. we. And, uh, well, I don't know if you remember. This is going to be a deep dive for you and I. Um in college we had a halloween mm-hmm. party as part of our sort of theater group and <clears throat> shout out bums and i think we watched the initial entries in friday the 13th uh nightmare on elm street and this if i'm not mistaken yes that is correct i remember that night it was so fun for me i don't know if it was this particular movie but i have very fond memories of so we did this big social event you know invited people it was to kind of raise money for the the theater department or something like that and the the sort of black box theater space that we had at the college we went to had a big screen you could lower the screen and project movies onto it and so we did that deep into the night and i have this memory do you remember this i don't know if you know where i'm going with this i was manning the sort of ticket booth area and once that wrapped up i don't I want to say it was Halloween, but I don't remember. I accessed the back of the stage. Yes, I remember this very well. That's awesome. And there, it probably wasn't like a huge crowd. I mean, there might have been, what, like 30 people, if that. And during a particularly scary moment, so I've got access to backstage. I'm behind the screen. I run out in front of the screen, just <laughs> arms up and just probably screaming or something and scared the you know what out of everyone it was it was glorious. oh it was fantastic the highest pitch scream i've ever heard you do and it was <laughs> it was phenomenal i remember that i remember that good, very well actually. good i'm glad it lives it lives on i'm glad they live i was gonna yeah. try to make it i see i was trying to find that one but it, it wasn't working <laughs> um so yeah i had seen halloween uh from that from that experience and so and i actually think i referenced this in the pilot of our podcast i can't remember exactly, but Halloween is one of those movies that really, to me, you know, occasionally you'll see, well, actually, yes, I think I referenced this in the podcast and in the pilot because I referenced how The Exorcist didn't quite do this for me. You know, how a movie, excuse me, will have kind of a classic, you know, sort of grade on it in sort of the rear view for movie buffs and The Exorcist, it's possible if I rewatched it now that might, this opinion might change a little bit. The Exorcist didn't quite achieve the hype surrounding it just because there is such mystique around all oh, this is the scariest movie right. of all time kind of thing however halloween i felt like really earned its bona fides um in terms of its it's that 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 classic label um i was really i mean yeah. this, this is the first time i saw it 15 years ago was with this theater group and maybe it was that communal experience but it just it did what it was supposed to do um, it was legitimately scary, even despite a little bit dated. It, it didn't feel that it doesn't feel like the datedness weighs it down at all, you know. And so, so even going into this particular rewatch for the podcast because I did rewatch it. Same night I watched the thing. By the way, uh, that's a all fun times. That's a wonderful one-two punch. <laughs> you know, I still think I, you'll you'll listen to this. Reed, we might be making history right here. You. You know, as much as you and I consider each other friends, I may be elevating my status in your eyes right here. 
I actually think probably Halloween would 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 easily nestle into one of my favorite scary movies. Like, it, oh wow, yes, you know, I mean, again, barring just sort of thirty years of production developments and 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 that sort of thing, but it just it is it it works. Yeah, it definitely does. You know that that I had you and I had this conversation via text and maybe via voice after watching the thing. I was, and this is before I knew sort of the backstory about the thing. I was positing how if the creature effects of the thing actually hindered it some, you know, because it is so grotesque, it is so ghastly. And I was comparing it in that conversation with you to alien and how, you know, alien Mm, and there's, and you know, there's backstory and conversation to be had there, but you know, you've got the alien xenomorph kind of creature design based on the HR Geiger material that is just so iconic and so classic. I mean that they just, they nailed it with that creature design. And juxtapose yeah. that with the thing, which is horrific and ghastly and ghoulish and nauseating and does what I imagine Carper intent, Carpenter intended it to do, but really is not iconic. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, ima- yeah. the images are iconic for Carpenter fans, but there's nothing about the entity that is the thing in the movie, the thing, that that is you know, classic that is iconic. Um, and where I'm going with that is Halloween. Like there was something about, and I, and honestly, I've not seen any sequels to Halloween. I've only seen that initial entry. Mm, yeah. And there's just something about the gas station jumpsuit and the, the haired mask, you know, with the white face. That's like, they just, they just nail it. It's not, they, yeah, they don't yeah. overdo the creature element. You know, it is just, and honestly, something I love, and I'm sure the sequels probably mine this to death or go way overboard with it. I love that there's no explanation for it. It just is. I mean, I mean, you've got some explanation for the Michael Myers character, but I mean, the the costume he wears, the outfit he wears, it just kind of is, you know. And and that feels very of a certain era that you didn't have to explain every jot and tittle of your your creative choices on screen. So I'm talking a lot, but the point I'm trying to make is yeah. the the movie Halloween. I really like a lot. I mean, it is it's scary. Um, and the night I watched it, uh, I ended at midnight and I texted you for about 10 minutes and browsed the internet for another 20 just to try to take my mind off of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with everything you've just said. I have a couple of, uh, of yes ands to, to throw in there. The, um, something that's, that's of interest. So when we get into conversation about theme of Halloween, you, I mean, you, you've hit the bullseye for part of what I wanted to talk about in terms of, uh, the sort of the lack of explanation. The, uh, the fact that so much is left unexplained about what Meyer's motives are and how he came about this particular, uh, intention to, to stalk these babysitters and everything. Now, some of that is unpacked in the sequels, but in this film specifically, it's not explained. And I think that's, very, very effective for what, you know, for what it is. And it's impressive to me. This film was made for like $300,000. It was made for so little money. Please, and please do it. it oh, I don't have $300,000. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it's just fascinating to me how much Carpenter was able to accomplish with this, you know, and, and some of that is is just him trying to establish 
uh, a natural feel to everything, sort of the, the long sweeping shots of the neighborhood and, and, uh, you know, Myers in the distance. Uh, and then, you know, just those little subtle touches that I think are so very effective and I think generate that kind of palpable fear as you're watching the film. We had a screening of it a couple of years ago with some buddies, uh, just some friends came over and in the room, I was the only person who had seen the film. Actually, I think it was me and one other buddy of mine who were the only people in about 10 to 12 people who had ever seen the original Halloween. Everybody liked it. Everybody was like, wow, this film holds up so very well. Like it's, it, it, I mean, even though it's now almost 40 years old, it's still a really effective, scary movie. And it's, it's such a great example of what you can do. I will say, uh, because I'm such a Star Trek fan and, uh, and I take uh, as many opportunities as I can to, to share my love for Star Trek. Uh, the mask that he is wearing, that they had a very limited budget for, for props. It's a William Shatner mold. It's William Shatner's Why do face. I know that? I know that. I knew that. <laughs> I don't know. I picked that I don't factoid know. up somewhere along the road. But right when you introduced yeah. that, I was like, that's where he's going. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's William Shatner's face that's been spray painted. So why is white. it? Um, just because he had to go to a costume shop, and that was uh, one of the cheap masks that they could buy. So oh. so they just bought the Captain Kirk mask and, and toughed up the hair and, and spray painted it white. And there you have, you know, the shape. That's what, that's what Myers is called. He's called the shape. Uh, which I think is 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 really kind of creepy uh, in and of itself. But the other thing that I wanted to mention before we sort of dive into particulars of Halloween, so the sequels, uh, we talked to some minor degree uh, when we talked about Cloverfield Lane, how Cloverfield Lane is somewhat unique in the franchise world because it's not a direct continuation. It's a it's a separate story taking place in the same world. But Carpenter had that idea. Almost 40 years ago, Halloween was originally supposed to be a franchise of films that are separate, self-contained stories that all take place within the same universe. And what's interesting is he made Halloween 1. It was wildly successful. They make Halloween 2, and Halloween 2 is a direct sequel to Halloween 1, which in retrospect is kind of where they went wrong. Because with it being a direct sequel to Halloween 1... When they made Halloween 3, uh, Season of the Witch, Michael Myers is nowhere to be found. The story has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Um, there's a brief nod in the film to the happenings in Haddonfield, but that's, that's it. The, the, the film is completely its own separate thing. And as a result of that, uh, as with many of Carpenter's films, it was panned when it first came out and was largely considered to be just a waste of time only because it had nothing to do with Michael Myers. And now, as again with most of Carpenter's films, it's enjoyed sort of a critical reassessment, and people are kind of coming to it going, now wait a second, sure, it doesn't have anything to do with Michael Myers, but it's actually not a bad, scary movie. It's actually pretty effective, and, mm. and it's got a decent story in it, and, and it's, it's worth watching. And I agree with that, by the way. It's not a favorite of mine, probably never will be, but, uh, but I, don't, I, I think it's, it's, it's a scary movie worth checking out. Um, you just have to go into it knowing... Okay, this has nothing to do with Halloween. Just pretend it's called Season of the Witch instead of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And then you might really actually enjoy it. So then, because of the critical backlash of that, all the sequels from that point on had specifically to do with Michael Myers and went into some kind of wonky and irrelevant territories. But I will say this as a final note on the sequels. If you are, if you liked Halloween, and I would recommend this for you, Nathan, but if, especially for any of our listeners, if you like Halloween but have not seen any of the sequels, I would recommend this trilogy. Watch Halloween, then watch Halloween 2, 
and then watch Halloween H2O, which we briefly referenced last week. So watch those three because those three together comprise a complete and pretty effective little trilogy that, that I like a lot. And those three films ignore the rest of the sequels. So it's, it's kind of a nice little trio of stories that if you do like Halloween, you want more from that universe, but you're not sure where to go with all the sequels, I would recommend Halloween, Halloween 2, and then Halloween H2O. Then water. And then water. Halloween water. Water. Um, but, uh, but something that, that, uh, we like to do here is I want, I want to talk about particularly your, your fa- sort of your favorite scares from Halloween because, uh, this is a film that I think has plenty of them. Uh, do you have some moments other than the overall effect of it that, that you would say specifically like, this is a good scare? I like this. Scare. Um, I did, I did jot down three, although I feel like, yeah, watching the movie, I got a little bit confused. I mean, ultimately you can just look up IMDb or watch the credits or whatever. There's a few moments where I was like, I can't tell who is Annie. Is that the child or is that the adult or the teenager watching her across the street? That, do you, do you know the immediate answer to that question? Oh, I do. Yeah. Annie, Annie is the babysitter. Annie, Annie is the, uh, the teenage babysitter. Right. Um, played by, by, I, I think it's either Nancy Kyes or Nancy Keys. I can't remember. But, but yeah, Annie is the adult or not the adult, the teenager. So, so three scenes I wrote down. I mean, in general, just the overall effect of the movie is very, potent. I mean, just, it, it really does a great job. Now I say that it does. I think this will make sense. It starts to border in places. It starts to flirt real close with self parody. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are moments where you're like, okay, yeah. I mean, there's, there's that familiar score and there he is, you know I mean? It, it, it just sort of, um, if you weren't so drawn in, in that first 30 minutes or so, there are moments where it's like, okay, haha, yeah, I get it. Well, let me, let me pause you there real yeah, quick please. because I, I do want to point one thing out. And this is something that I, I, I love having this conversation about Halloween because the, the, what I'm about to say is something I've said to a few other people. Keep something in mind that when you say like self parody or, or things like that, Halloween was the first to do most of the things sure. that it's doing. Sure. Sure. So, so like those, those, those jump scares, that's largely, uh, I mean, he, he wasn't, I mean, Jaws came out before that and, and there's a couple of those kind of moments in Jaws. So he's, Carpenter is not the first to have those sort of like, oh, there's the music and you're startled. And, you know, he's clearly not the first person to do that, but he's the first to sort of make it a staple yeah. of yeah. those kinds of stories. Yeah. And, uh, and and that technique and many of the techniques that we see present in Halloween, if you've never seen Halloween, if if any of our listeners have never seen Halloween and you go watching it now, it's likely that you'll walk away going, well, it's kind of cliched, like everything was kind of cliched. And just keep in mind, if you feel that way, that it wasn't at the time, sure, that it's sure. creating those cliches that you see, you know, nearly 40 years later and all these other movies later that have taken that and and developed those ideas and, and aped those ideas and, and in some ways improved upon them. But Halloween kind of got there first for a lot of those things. Yeah. And I can hold that tension. And so, uh, yeah, um, that, that was one of the things I was able in those moments be like, well, you know, this is almost 40 years ago. Um, but specifically some scenes that either caused me to jump or just genuinely were kind of scary. Uh, what I wrote was Annie and the young girl crossing the street and him popping up from behind the car. Yep. Does that ring a bell? Yes. I think yes. that's when she's first going to deposit the, the little girl at, with Jamie Lee Curtis. With yeah, with Lori. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was effective. Made me jump. Um, and then there's two that are pretty substantial. Uh, one is honestly just the the sequence 
of Lori, is that the character's name? Yeah, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis's character is Lori. Arriving to the crime scene. And and that oh my that gosh. sort of once that starts through her return to the other home, I mean, even the scene, well, you know, as part of that sequence is her at the neighbor's house. I mean, that's that's terrifying. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, just that like I think I think something Halloween does well is it's got just enough real world to it that, yeah. that increases the scare factor. You know what I mean? Sure. You know, sure. some of the, I mean, the thing is a scary movie. It's horrific, but it's still pretty fantastical. You know, Halloween, like it, it's just right on the edge of, okay, this is, this is actually kind of believable. Like I, I would believe this could happen somewhere. Sure. Um, and so yes. when you mix yeah. into that, a teenage girl banging and screaming for her life at a neighbor's home and getting turned away, that's, that's awful. They just click on the light look out the window, and then click it off again. That is so yep. effective. I was like, oh, my yes. gosh. Oh, it's, I mean, not to derail where you were going, but like that, that moment for me is so, uh, like you said, believable. Like, I can, like people yeah. could do yeah. that. And to the fact that the threat might be genuine and real and right. they just right. ignore it is just, oh, my gosh, it's crazy. Well, and I think, you know, in terms of scare elements, I'm going to talk something generally and then one specific. The general one is just the movie just does a darn good job of atmosphere. I mean, like, yes, you know, I made the reference to you. You alluded to it a minute ago. The movie it follows, which is fantastic. Uh, watched a couple of months ago myself and it had been years again since I'd seen Halloween. So I wasn't thinking about it, but I had the feeling watching Halloween that I had watching it follows, which is the movie invites you to stare at the screen in a way that yes, few movies know how to do well and and halloween just really you know it may have been as you've sort of alluded to maybe one of the first that did that to that level or whatever but you you start scouring the actual image on your tv for okay where is he you know where's he going to come out of so that just general kind of note was was really well done and effective but the the other real specific one is man (laughs) that final five seconds i mean that's effective Uh, oh yes you know, oh, yeah. it's, it's, see, now I'm going to talk about it and, and not be able to reference the specifics, but it starts small, right? It starts at one air or it go, does it go to each house? The shot goes to each house and, and his breathing is overlaid over it. The audio. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 No, you're right. It, it just keeps showing the exteriors of the house. Um, you've seen that he's not, are you talking about the moment that like after he's shot, after oh, yeah, he falls yeah, yeah. over. I mean, this is the very end of yeah. the movie pre-credits yeah and it keeps going to the exteriors of every house and just and you you hear his breathing as each exterior is shown right just this idea of he's out there somewhere but like you said you don't know where yeah i mean that was that was incredibly effective so yeah i mean for me those would be kind of the primary kind of scary moments but 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 again halloween is one of those movies trying to think of one of the ones we've covered so far, I mean, it, it sort of feels like it stands out that develops a genuine tension that just keeps kind of ratcheting up some. Now, you know, there are moments like when he falls out the window and then suddenly is not there. You're like, oh, okay. But but in terms of the the grittier elements of it, the the sort of tension continuing to build and build and build until the last 10 seconds is the implication that he's anywhere and you'll never know until he's upon you. Right. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty, yeah. That's a pretty freaky, uh, pretty freaky way to end the movie, but an effective one. Yeah. Well, and and the final final lines of the movie, 
uh, final spoken lines of the movie are exactly what you're describing uh, from a thematic perspective and, and a, just a phenomenal way to end that story is uh, Lori asks, she said, you know, it was the boogeyman, wasn't it? And uh, she either says that or she says, you know, was it the boogeyman? And Dr. Loomis looks at her and says, as a matter of fact, it was. And I mean, it, the, just this idea of a boogeyman, mm -hmm. this, you know, in, in, you know, tangible but inexplicable evil right. that is lurking in the shadows, ready to, to pounce upon you. Um, that is, you know, every culture has a kind of a boogeyman story. And every child, whether they were protected from, you know, fear and scary stories or not, have sort of an idea of, you know, a boogeyman kind of thing. We've, we've never tried to develop, you know, scary stories in, in our son's mind. Yet, right. he very early, you know, began to sort of have this fear of the dark and fear of, of, what things look like when the lights are out, and you know this fear. Well, that's because you showed it. That's because you showed it Monsters Inc. too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that parenting fail. Um, but you know, like in general, the, the, this idea of you know we, we we learn or we develop very early the sensibility that like okay something something's hiding in the shadows, or we we develop that fear that something's hiding in the shadows, and that's kind of one of you know sort of the main thing I wanted to talk about thematically because I think that's. What Halloween really gets right is this idea of, you know, sort of the, the shadowed evil, the, the lurking in the dark kind of, kind of evil, which honestly is not something as prevalent as that is in the horror genre. It's not something that we've really talked directly about on this show yet. Just this idea of, you know, some, something is waiting in the dark for you. That, that fear or that notion that's like, uh, you know, don't turn out the lights. Don't go around that corner. You know, don't go there. Don't go here. Um, because something is, is waiting, uh, for you. And, and that's so many of the shots in Halloween. I love the shots where he's just standing there watching oh, and doesn't do anything. And then, you know, then he's just gone. And so you as the audience are sitting there like, what, what, where is he? What, what, what's, what's just happened? Well, you know, what's funny about you saying that is I think something the movie does well. And, you know, I don't know if this is a director choice, an actor choice, or a combination of the two, but his movements, his body language are so confined. They're so restrained. He is either mm. standing still or just walking. There's no running. Yeah. There's no crouching. There's no leaping. There's no diving. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah. And yeah. so even things that could come off as silly, like I'm thinking of the scene where Annie and Laurie are walking down the street and he steps out from behind the bush and then steps around it or steps you know, back behind it. Yes. Like, yeah, that's early in the movie. That yeah. could be kind of cheesy, that, that's the sort of physicality he exhibits there, but it's not to me because it's, it's that locomotion. It's, it's, he is either static or he is in motion, but not... And that sort of enhances the the scary element, right? Like he doesn't have to. Yeah. He doesn't. Oh, ha yeah. He doesn't have to run. He's going to get you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because he's waiting for you. And and I I think that's the uh, that's the real fear factor of of Halloween and stories like it is just that that idea of of the ever present possibility of danger uh, just around the next corner. And I think that's something that we all kind of have to confront at some point in our lives. Uh, it's something that in practical ways, uh, but also uh, emotional, mental, and spiritual ways, we have to confront that idea 
of, you know, sort of the, the ever lurking, ever waiting danger that's, that's just around the other corner. We've talked at length about ways that you and I personally feel people should respond to those kinds of things. But, you know, we, we've never directly addressed, to my knowledge, never directly addressed that, you know, just the simple fact that, yes, we are, we have the capacity as people to be afraid of those things, to be afraid that danger is, is lurking around the corner. And, uh, if you live in Haddonfield on Halloween night, it probably is. <laughs> I've, I don't know. Um, I don't know quite where you're going to land the plane on that idea, but I, I've also got another thematic thing I want to introduce. But I want you to be able to finish that thought. I just didn't want. Sure, to. sure. Well, what I'll do to to sort of close, you know, put a bow on that idea is the sort of the scripture verse that I thought of when I was thinking about how to tackle this theme of the boogeyman and the the unexplained evil in the world. The, the verse that I thought of was actually Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and something that I think is, is key to remember. Okay, well I'll, well, I'll say the verse, and then I'll tell you what it makes me think. So th- that verse, Ephesians six twelve says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, keeping in mind, that may sound like kind of an odd scripture to think of when you're talking about the fictional version of Halloween where despite the inexplicable nature of evil, he is flesh and blood and there is, you know, flesh and blood consequences for what he's doing. But what I think is imperative to remember, and this is where I wanted to kind of land that idea, is that whether or not you are dealing with actual flesh and blood human beings and whether or not you are dealing with actual tangible wickedness, we must never lose sight of the fact that that sort of lurking fear that there is something in the shadows or that there is danger present is something that although it is intangible and although we can't wrap our hands around it, we can confront it and we can sort of attack that idea. We can basically assault the notions of our own fear. That basically what I wanted to say on this Halloween week in the fear of God, first first time we're talking about it in this conversation about Halloween, is just to remind us that we, we can confront our own fear and we can keep in mind that it's not just other people that we're wrestling against. We're also wrestling against ideas. We're also wrestling against the intangibles. And keeping that in mind, I think, is some of our best ammunition for actually overcoming the fears that are tangible. And uh, that's just kind of the main thing that I wanted to say about that. Um, I did want you to finish that thought by quoting the little boy from Donnie Darko. Can you do that? Can you do that for me? I'm not afraid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Oh, boy. Um, You put me on the spot and I still delivered. You did. You did. Well, you've got an audience. You've got an audience. And like me, me, you just can't resist. Um, You know, it's funny, like watching Halloween... uh, with some of the other movies, I had to work a little bit to get some thematic ideas. And, and I don't mean to, <laughs> like Roddy Piper and Keith David, haphazardly throw a grenade into a backpack. But um, <laughs> so, so, so I do, I'm going to introduce kind of a heavy idea, not really knowing, wanting you to provide some feedback and some input. But, but really, it's sort of a half-formed um, There's no conclusion to it. It's just sort of something I thought about. And a movie like Halloween... My my wife just would never engage many of the movies that we are watching for this podcast, but specifically one like Halloween. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I mentioned this a minute ago or a few minutes ago at this point of kind of the almost realism of Halloween. Like, you know, there there have yeah. been, what, 15 sequels? I'm exaggerating, of course. But, you know, there have been a ton of sequels that have 
mythologized the Michael Myers character and pop culture has mythologized. I mean, you just called him what the shape, like and the shape. Yeah. Correct mm-hmm. me. You're saying shape like circle, triangle, square, right? The shape. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, shape with a P. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the mythology that has grown up around this character, but if you take Halloween on its own, the movie by itself, um, which yes, by the end of it does elevate him to sort of mythological levels. But I think there's a really interesting conversation that could be had forgive me if this is going too deep too quick, but about mental illness. Mm. You know, I think this movie, I know that John Carpenter in, in 1980, is that when this was? 1980? Uh, 78, 78, actually. Right, Close. right. Yeah. Uh, the Fog was 80. See? Look, I'm learning. You are. I'm proud of you. You know, I, I, I don't think that conversation was being had like it is today in 2016. And so, you know, he wouldn't have known to, to handle this in a particularly sensitive way or not. It was just about making a scary movie. But, but I think there's an interesting conversation this movie invites about that subject Mm. you know we live in a culture right now i don't even want to introduce the gun aspect of it but where mental illness is a very prevalent conversation and yeah you know this movie does something that today would probably be considered pretty insensitive and takes a mentally ill character and turns them into a psychotic murderer you know yeah and and sort of then mythologizes it to kind of crazy levels. And that's what I mean by sort of the realism of it. Like in the context of the movie, even when the doctor and the nurse approach the facility, you know, it's done so in kind of haunted house, spooky kind of ways. You know, I mean, the lighting is real specific. You know, there's people wandering the the field around the hospital. So it's a little, it's elevated is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, right, 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 right. But there's still a very specific kind of, thing going on there which is you know a mentally ill character who needs treatment then performs these heinous acts and so i you know like i said I, I'm, I'm just throwing a grenade in a backpack and seeing where we carry it to and if it's going to defeat the aliens or not you know i'm, I'm totally mixing, <laughs> totally mixing carpenter you know crossing the streams here but it but it makes me think about you know from a christian perspective we talked last week about generosity and the hospitality that is, I would say, more than courage, but is kind of commanded by the New Testament. How readily that gets kind of brushed aside when faced with threat. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And, and you take that to another level when you come to the mental illness conversation about how every person is sacred. And, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying, well, we'll let them run amok in their the town of their birth and they're going to kill everybody. You know, (laughs) the movie goes there. I'm just borrowing the the groundwork the movie establishes and trying to have a conversation about that subject. And, and I just think there's something to be said for, for that idea that, you know, we are compelled to view even the most heinous among us as in the image of God. And, And I think that's a very challenging proposition that we often just ignore that we often just, choose to not consider you know what i mean like does that does that, does that make any I do, sense yeah, I do. at all um you know it's, it's no absolutely it does it's yeah. interesting and, and and you even referenced this a minute ago but like movies like this or or even our zeitgeist that we kind of operate in right now in terms of political and kind of social like this conversation of of evil and the sort of direct link we will sometimes make sometimes to a person being evil and a person with mental illness. Right. Like, you know, there, right. there's a very direct link that we will make in conversation and in the news and in headlines about that. And, and I've referenced him before. I'll continue to reference him hopefully the rest of my adult life. But 
you know, this, this guy, Brian Stevenson out of Alabama, who's doing so much for prison reform. And you and I talked off podcast about the podcast he was a part of, um, this podcast called Criminal. And he's talking about his book, Just Mercy, which is just about the need to display mercy to everyone. And yeah. that's an oversimplification, but roughly uh, approximation. And the interviewer that's speaking with him basically asks the question that this movie invites, if it's not asking it, I don't think it is, but it does invite it. And that's, have you ever encountered someone who is beyond mercy, basically? Mm. And his response, he, he does nuance it. You know, he does talk about mental illness. He's like, there are, you know, I've encountered people for whom mental illness is an extreme circumstance that, that kind of prohibits them from even growing back into normal, quote unquote, social interaction. But his answer disregarding that is no, you know, there's no one beyond mercy. Um, And I think it's, I I don't know, I just think it's an interesting sort of discussion to be had, you know, and probably deeper than the movie Halloween wants to invite, but something that definitely uh, was stirred up in me. Like we look at this character of Michael Myers, who, yeah, has been mythologized and in the movie is a horrific character, but we're going to encounter horrific characters in our life. Hopefully they're not to this extreme, certainly. But, you know, it's kind of what you do in the face of that, or at least how you how you view their role in society that's really going to shape their ultimate behavior in some cases. I don't know. I might be just sort of rambling at this point, but um, that's sort of what the movie invited. No, I do. I do understand what you're trying to say. It's, it's interesting because uh, like, I think one of the things that the horror genre does really well at large is take our fears, take them to their extreme logical conclusion or extreme illogical conclusion and then explore that territory. So, you know, one of the things that I was sitting here thinking, it's a direct quote from the movie uh, that Dr. Loomis says when, uh, you know, kind of the conversation that you're inviting right now is the conversation that he's having with the nurse at the very beginning of the movie and uh, when they're driving, you know, to get Michael. And then he says, you know, I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Right. And um, and so, you know, he's taking this and, and, and again, the horror genre is really good at saying, hey, what if it's all the worst possible conclusion? Explanation. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Yeah. What if it's all the worst possible explanation and then exploring it in that context? But I do agree with you that it's like we have to acknowledge kind of combining the two thoughts that there are intangibles at work that we need to be prepared to confront probably before we ever attempt to confront the tangibles. And I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's too broad a statement, but I think that, you know, we need to acknowledge the intangibles. If you're not somebody, if you're listeners, if you're not somebody who believes in the supernatural world, or you're not somebody who, who, who really buys into any of that, then take intangibles to mean, uh, like what we're talking about, you know, a, a state of mentality or a state of psychology or whatever it is. But I think that um, it is significant to try to confront the intangibles uh, before you try to wrap your head around the tangibles. And then I think there may be some some merit to uh, just sort of more deductive reasoning in general rather than just simply, you know, writing something off. Now, that having been said, I do believe in categorical evil. Like, I, 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 do, I do believe in that. That's not a conversation that, that, you know, we really have the time for that I really want to explore right now. But 
I do believe that there, that within the extremes of qualitative good, there is the other extreme of qualitative evil, and I think all of us lie somewhere in the midst of them, constantly being pulled in one direction or another. And I think that what we have to do as people is we have to confront, as we've said, the intangibles, the ideologies, the mentalities, uh, and even the spiritual forces at work, and then we'll better have a handle on the tangible nature of, of what we're trying to deal with. And maybe sure. that is too, well, that's you a, know, that's a much bigger conversation too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing, man. Uh, part of me wishes and, and we don't, but part of me wishes we had another, you know, two hours to dive into what, you know, to what is present in Halloween. I think that it's a, you know, it's a great, I mean, lest we get too, too deep into the fact that it's simply just an effective, scary movie with a simple story that, works very, very well, even almost 40 years on. But I think if you do watch Halloween, either for the first time or revisit it, there's the possibility that you can walk away from that and go, okay, well, you know, uh, especially on this particular Halloween in 2016, I invite you to uh, to think about that kind of thing, to think about, like, how do I respond to sort of the boogeyman in my life, and is there a way that's better than how I typically respond to them, which is just to run and hide? Sure. Um, or, you know, is is there, you know, what do I think about the, the, the possibility or the existence of these little boogeyman ideas? And if I do believe in them, uh, how do I think they need to be defeated? You know, like, I, I would invite you to start really thinking about that, because Halloween is kind of a time uh, to do that, to also... Quote, uh, Sheriff Brackett, uh, from Halloween, uh, everyone's entitled to one good scare. So <laughs> I think that, uh, it, it's a, it's a thought worth having and a conversation worth having. Is that, is that as much as you wanted to kind of say about it before yeah, we wrap up? I'm good. I think the, I think the grenade went off and we're good. All right. Well, I lost an arm, but we've got it. We're here. And, uh, uh, no, as, as we say every episode, and as we've said, you know, 10 episodes now, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of the conversation. Uh, I want to just say on, you know, behalf of Nathan and myself, we already said at the top of the episode, but happy Halloween. Uh, we hope that you have a very fun, uh, fun and safe Halloween. And, uh, you can reach us in a variety of ways to keep the conversation going, both on, uh, John Carpenter in general and his work and on Halloween specifically. Uh, you can find us a number of places. You can follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what's our Twitter handle? Uh, at the fear of God. And, uh, you can also like us on Facebook. You can email us fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at the Nathan Rouse. So um, we want to uh, we want to invite you particularly to investigate social media because uh, the you know later later today as you're listening to this episode um, not today as we're recording it but today as you're listening to it just check out social media to find out what we're going to be talking about next week obviously this concludes our uh, month long examination of the work of John Carpenter. But uh, certainly we want the conversations there to continue. And uh, you can, you know, again, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook or email us to, uh, you know, definitely check out social media to see where we're going to be talking next and uh, exactly what you need to, to see if you're watching these movies along with us. So as always, Nathan, happy Halloween. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for watching all these John Carpenter movies. Even they live. <laughs> right back at you, my friend. Thank you. All right. Well, we will uh, we will talk to you guys sometime soon. Happy Halloween again, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting the fear of God for links to our social media and episode archive essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash the fear of God podcast, where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.